Welcome to the first edition of the Populous Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Welcome back. My name is Colin Kramer. Today I want to talk about theater here in the world's theater capital. That's right. North Hollywood, California has more playhouses than any other city or neighborhood on the planet. By the way, Los Angeles as a whole has more art venues than any other place on earth. Great place to be. So theater officially started when Thespis, a chorus member in a Dionysian ritual, drunkenly stepped out of the chorus and basically just put on a solo show. And to this day, we name actors after him. Thespians. Now let's clarify the spelling of theater. My understanding is that when it ends E-R, you're talking about the place, the theatrical venue. And when we spell it R-E, we're either speaking British or we're referring to the craft itself. And I think the word theater alone holds a clue. Just rearrange a couple of the letters and you have the art. You're stuck with an extra E, but uh, it works. Do you remember the vision of Ezekiel's story? He had a psychedelic experience. And then God decided to reveal some behind-the-scenes footage of how the universe really works. And the curtain was lifted, and Ezekiel was able to see backstage, where the deus ex machina, machine of God, was operating. See, I love this stuff. The illusory nature of reality. It's all just a show, man. And the stage metaphor goes deep. From the Shakespeare quote about us all being players, all the way to Mario 3, at the very beginning of the game, when we see the curtain lifted. So what stage are you in? I gotta say, theater is the most pagan of all art forms. Probably because it's the most ancient. The ritual of acting out. And going into a dark room, which is also your mind, in open space, where anything can happen. And the stage is like an altar. The ancient Greeks were really into performing for no audience, because the gods are always watching. Powerful. So go see a live show. There's so damn many of them. You can watch a fucking movie anytime, but with a play, you're there, in the sacred space. It's more fluid. Shows can be revised with each performance. There's a certain sense of presence and urgency. And a lot of these theater superstitions and traditions are intense. Like leaving a ghost light on every night. Chekhov said that flies purify the air and plays the morals. And even though flies are pretty disgusting, he has a point about stirring things up. Circulation. Did you know that the Greeks used to require that sitting senators spent time in the theater. It's a place to realize the human condition, see what's up. And even the venue itself has some pretty interesting properties going on. The word entrance means under a spell, as if by entering into this space, you are agreeing to have a spell placed upon you. 
And you got to have layers at any place that has live performances, like the lobby, so that only those who have paid their dues can experience the ceremony inside. Usually, initiation basically just means paying a cover charge, right? And if you get into actually doing theater, then you know the different acting styles are a trip. It's a way to explore other worlds and characters, almost in a psychedelic sense, because you get to let this other world take on a life of its own. It's meta. Like, like, is it the character having all these experiences, or is it me? Here in the States, we get all method, where it's like, what's going on internally? What's your character thinking about? What's my motivation? Quick story. I was at a haunted house in St. Louis one time, and a total maniac came out from behind a corner with a chainsaw. He had blood and guts all over his face, and he was just inches away from our faces. And my friend Langley Denton looked him right in the eye, and she asked, What did your character have for breakfast this morning? I don't think he had the same theater training as we did. Whereas in England, they'd be all, What the devil is this nonsense? No one bloody cares what you had for breakfast. All that matters is that you can be seen and heard. It's much more about serving the play. It's more technical. And even the audience is treated like a well-oiled machine. Whereas the American style is more about bettering yourself. Like a spiritual discipline. Anyway. Today's show is going online on 420, I hope. So I also have to spend some time acknowledging the miracle herb known as cannabis. It's not only where we get the word canvas, another clean slate. It's also where the terms cannabinoid receptors and endocannabinoid system come from, which proves our sort of ongoing co-partnership with cannabis throughout existence. So do you want to know what's really up with 420? Do you realize that the most famous speech in American history begins 420? Four score and seven years ago? I know sometimes people say I have a dream speech by MLK is the most popular, but I think that's number two. Score, definitely one of its definitions is 20, but it does sound a bit more dignified than 20. And you know, Lincoln wanted something with more of a punch, but four score still means 420. So there you have it. And we just happened to upload a new show on the 20th of each month, except last month, as you may have noticed, because I was in Canada, although I was on a podcast. It just wasn't this podcast. It was the Once Upon a Wine podcast with the Mereros, Aaron and Ace, and we discussed Vancouver and the rock opera screening and all that good stuff. It's actually really funny, so you should check it out. By the way, Aaron, Ace, and I all studied under the one and only Peter Biger at Stevens College, and he's going to be on a little later in the show, so stay tuned. But what is it about 420 that resonates so deeply? We got Abe Lincoln, we got the Stoner Code, which last I checked came about from some stoners that would meet up and smoke out every afternoon at 420. Also, I believe Hamlet, if staged correctly, runs exactly four hours and 20 minutes long. Religious freedom was granted to Jews on April 20th, 1657. I think this is right around the time a boat with 23 Jews on it had been kicked out of the Caribbean, and they were trying to get into New York, and the governor, well, is still New Amsterdam at the time, but he didn't want to let the Jews in. Imagine that. 
And then the governor gets word from the Dutch government back home. And they're like, let him in. The Jews will be good for business. So you got to love it when stereotypes work out well like that. Moving on. Um, I mean, just look at all the really crazy things that have happened on 420. Speaking of religious stereotypes, it was Hitler's birthday. There was also the mining strike of 1914 in Colorado, where the Rockefellers sent a bunch of goons in to take out some miners that were on strike, 20 of which died from smoke inhalation. Sounds like the Rockefeller-owned goons were trying to smoke the workers out, and not in a good way. The Trenchcoat Mafia shooting happened on 420 in 1999 in Columbine, also in Colorado. There was the 1978 incident in which a Korean Airlines jet went a little off course near the Finnish-Russian border and was fired at by some fucking Soviet maniacs. Two people died in that unnecessary attack. The Waco incident, you know, when the federal government burned down the Branch Davidian complex, even though they had ample opportunities to arrest David Koresh weeks before that. Waco was actually on April 19th, but come on, that's close enough. Also, the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. The Deepwater Horizon BP oil rig exploded on April 20th, 2010, which is probably still the worst oil disaster in world history. And in June of 2013, Michael Hastings died in a fiery car crash at 4.20 a.m. That was the journalist who brought down General McChrystal. He was considered a daring critic of the Obama administration, and they say he had drugs in his system when the car crashed, but now that we know about how cars can be taken over remotely, who knows? So why would stoners celebrate their holiday on what sounds like the worst day of the year? Well, I think it has something to do with all the fire involved. Look at how many things from that list involve fires or explosions. And smoking weed involves fire. It's sort of a sacrificial burning. And many do use it as a religious sacrament. Real quick, the most blatant pot references in pop culture growing up had to be that La Cocorocha song, especially since so many ice cream trucks played it, Mary Jane from the Spider-Man comics, and all those cartoons where the flower pots fall on people's heads. They're pot heads, get it? But it's not all fun and games, man. Wars have been fought over cannabis and opium. It's been a way to discriminate people. Some people can't handle their high, and you never know what's in there. Did you see the video of those kids trick someone into smoking a joint filled with K2? Out of control. There's always a dark side. Maybe the La Cocorocha song was designed to play on ice cream trucks so that they could brainwash children into becoming demonic dope fiends. Hey, it could be fun. So let's get to the first interview, shall we? Oh, and as always, you can tweet me at Colin Kramer without vowels, that is. So at C-L-N-K-R-M-R. Also, I want to give today's sponsors a special shout out. Nicole and Carla of TerraBoost Media. Peter, 
Yeah, Colin. What are you up to? I started doing a podcast. Oh. So what I do is I rant, and which you know I'm good at. In fact, you were the one who called me the monologue machine. <laughs> and um, and then I do at least like one interview per show. Um, how are things with you? Uh, well, pretty good. Columbia hasn't changed. It's still the. I think Columbia was ranked nine in the country for um, small uh, cities, and their comment was quirky, artistic, uh, different. So it was pretty pretty cool. So holds up pretty well. They just had their True False Festival a while back, and they have a big, um, you know, a big um, uh, music festival every summer. So, you know, it keeps you occupied. I've got some extra time on this episode. I'm, I'm kind of doing two topics, theater, and because uh, it's 420, I have to include a little bit of cannabis. Do you have a few minutes? Any chance you'd be willing to uh, do a little segment for the show? Oh, give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Populous Papers. What first brought you into acting? Uh, I, where I grew up in uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania, in Bucks County. There was a great uh, uh, summer stock theater there, and uh, I uh, got involved with that and uh, um, worked my way up in the, in the company, kind of started out just, you know, selling concessions, picking up cigarette butts, cleaning out the theater, and I would watch rehearsals, and I would, like, really enjoy and these are actors from new york they're in the straw hat circuit they would during the summers they'd come from new york and it's only about an hour 45 minutes from new york city hmm. so um so i mixed with the with, with the actors and of course fall in love with the the lifestyle and the and the uh, performances and i used to watch rehearsals and got into my bloodstream Hmm, I like it. Now, you mentioned Summerstock. That's kind of interesting because you went on to do Okoboji Summer Theater, which I think holds the record for the most productions in any summer season. It's interesting. Nine shows in ten weeks. Right, plus the Children's Theater. So um, with those four shows. Okoboji. Okoboji. And that's still going. Still going. I was... Uh, had Easter dinner with uh, uh, Rob Doyen, and uh, it was uh, uh, we were talking about the Okoboji Summer Theater and how it's going and everything. But uh, now, is it true that it rained frogs there one summer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, it could have been. It could have been frogs. Uh, it's hard to tell. It's all but, a blur. Uh, you might have it, it. It could have been very easily. They had some incredible thunderstorms. I'll say that. Yeah, that was that was when I got the idea of doing the uh, uh, doing the space Hamlet. I was I was uh, laying out in a meadow and um, and uh, watching this incredible thunderstorm come through and then cleared out in this beautiful sky. And I said, hmm, that'd be an interesting place. For Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous Hamlet in space. The space Hamlet, right. 
I love it. Right. Well, and Okoboji was known for these kind of otherworldly experiences. Part of it may have been the Brigadoon factor. You know, people were just going nuts. It was, we were in this little theater bubble. So it was its own kind oh, of yeah. paradise where your mind could go wild. And uh, and it often did uh, more than just. Yes. A... <laughs> yes. Um, but also there were so many lakes. I mean, you're 10 minutes from the border of Minnesota. It's kind of the Great right. Lakes region still in that area. That's and right. so, and, and like you said, right, the storms get crazy. So very easily um, a little like frog pond or an area that had a lot of frogs could have been lifted up. And then, yeah, it was raining frogs. Well, the the one of the myths about Lake Okoboji, there was little Okoboji and there was big Okoboji, but the story was that um, there was a um, a brave and um, a, uh, a, I won't say squaw, because that's not politically correct, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and they had fallen in love, and uh, they were from different tribes, and so they got, and they were being chased, and they um, were, got in a canoe, and they were going to go to the other side of the lake and, and escape, and the uh, storm came up and the canoe tipped over and they drowned and so uh, lake okoboji was always considered a sacred spiritual um lake oh. and, mm-hmm. a lot of lingering energies there oh yeah and then during the i think it was in the 18 it was that after um probably after the civil war but uh, Inca Paducah was a um, brave. He, he was a, a, a wild man, and he um, was a Sioux renegade. And he came down along the, where the farmers were. This was like pretty late in the 1800s, 1860, 18, 1870, around in there. Hmm and uh, massacred uh, a whole, they went from one farm to the next farm and massacred everyone. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. Maniac. Mm-hmm. And then they they took, um trying to think of her name, but they uh, stole her, uh, trying to think of her name, but, um, and she went with the tribe and lived with them for quite a while, and then eventually they traded her for, uh, something else, and they let her go. Then wow. and her cabin is still down in, in where the little carnival, um, Arnold's Park. Oh, right up there. So, like Spirit Lake, Arnold's Park area. Yeah, I think it was Becky. Becky Short was that her name? But um, that was the the great massacre that that happened. So a lot of strange things happened up and around in there. Interesting. Up in, up in the Iowa Lakes. Well, no wonder they call it Spirit Lake. Spirit Lake, exactly. <laughs> um, incredible. So let me ask you, if you could have any venue, any cast, and unlimited resources, what would your dream show be to direct? Holy moly. Um, that's hard to say. I don't know. I don't think I can answer that. I think there's just so many various plays and and productions, and they all have their own, you know, lifestyle and and approach. Uh, uh, but uh, certainly Shakespeare, and 
probably Hamlet again, but... Well, would you say there there was any particular production or happening that you saw um, that really inspired you to pursue theater? Um, no, I think, you know, just hanging backstage and um, I, you know, uh, one of my jobs was the to draw the curtain, you know, different thing, and getting to know actors, really, uh, and uh, just the wonder of, of, of theater and uh, performance, and um, every play was a challenge and an interesting project, and um, these were wonderful performers that were regular actors in New York City, and they'd come down and, and do the shows, and they're really wonderful people. And I was a gopher, you know, I got to know them and I'd run errands and things for them backstage and I was just, you know, I was just a kid at the time. Hmm. Well, um I was like 13 years old. And then you wound up getting your equity card. Actually both equity cards, right? By the time you were what, 19? Oh yeah. Mhm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so throughout your acting and directing work, I mean, was there any particular, uh, production that was particularly a highlight or most challenging? Mm, you mean at the Bucks County Playhouse or just in my career? Yeah, anywhere. Could have been at Stevens oh. or Boji. Boy, there were a lot of them, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's hard to say. Hard to say. Well, Dracula must have been a lot of fun. Well, I did. I think I did about five different Draculas at different places. Mm. Uh, I kind of enjoyed that. I enjoyed the theatricality of it, and you know the the the, the joy of, of of playing that. And, and um, of course, I I'm sure I overacted, but. Um, <laughs> I eventually learned to tone it down. You know? <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it, finding the right balance. Well, tell you what, if you had the power to make Donald Fuckface sit still and watch any play of your choice, what would it be? Julius Caesar. <laughs> good, good. It's interesting. A lot of people don't appreciate that doing theater, even to this day, you're engaging in a pagan ritual. You know, from oh, definitely, yeah, right. The rehearsals to the the catharsis of performance. Do you have any or um, any ideas about sort of the esoteric origin of theater? I think it's nature. Hmm. I think it, it's. I think it's the natural cycle of birth and life and death. Um, and of course, it's imagination too. So, um, it you know began uh, what was uh, began when um, the natives would um, go out and they would they would dance and to the gods and to the spirits. But they it, it was all about you know, survival, basically. It's just really a lesson about about surviving and, and the importance of action and, and reaction and uh, the 
the the consequences and but anyway they would you know they would go out and uh, try to find food and if they didn't if they had a bad stretch and they didn't get food then they would dress up as the animals and then they would perform ceremonies and rituals that would recreate the hunt and uh, uh, that's right there where theater began taking on that skin that that uh, hide and um, uh, putting the makeup on and enacting the animal um, and um, that's kind of the like the beginning of theater uh, and, and fascinating so it was kind of an invocation and uh, Mother, Mother Earth and Father Sky. I love it. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's interesting. It's, uh, I mean, it couldn't hurt to have a little assistance from the gods uh, for the next hunt. Oh, it was, it, was, it was all about the gods. It was all about nature and the con- survival. You know, that's what it is. It's survival. And there's not a business in the world that isn't all about survival than theater. And when I say theater, I mean film and, you know, uh, any of the arts. Um, the performing arts. Art. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I it mean, was... It's a struggle just to live, just to survive, to make a living, to do things, to create the, the imagery of, of what you need to the character performance, taking on a taking on a character and and recreating that character and uh, using all of the Stanislavski method and, um, you know, assuming that character and then interacting with everyone. And it's a very delicate, very uh, tenuous uh, uh, process and um, it has to be all about love and and desire and knowing about life and and then you have to have an instrument that that can perform it and takes a lifetime to learn and you know it's just, it's an, it's it's kind kind of like a a monastery or a nunnery right well the theater is a sacred space but it's kind it is of a sacred space. it's it's kind of the opposite in some ways of a monastery it's where you know, you, you confront all those urges. I mean, you got the highest alcoholism, you got the highest, um, you know, promiscuity and superstition, maybe the sort of instability and the lifestyle you're talking about is part of why we have such a superstitious crowd in the theater. Getting yeah, all the help. Production, I've done a number of productions of uh, Macbeth. Uh, which is a very powerful play, and you know you never mention the the, the title of the play. It's all you know you, you, that that's a superstition in the theater uh, that you never never mention the title of the play. Right. Mm-hmm. Powerful. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It draws you in. Draws you in, and uh, has such a great history, and. Um, it's uh, death defying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, um, I've heard you mention some pretty interesting ideas in the past when we worked together about sort of how the audience is an active character in the show. Oh yeah, yeah. I think that's 
that's so to me uh ultimately you know the, it's the play it's the writer it's the playwright it's the director it's the actors but the ultimate is the audience uh you know they have to find some common ground with the performance and uh if you're sensitive enough you can feel that audience you can you 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 know you know uh you know the line they say to an actor before they go out on stage you know go out and kill them you know <laughs> but um uh, i think it's um go out and love them and um and feel that energy that you get from them from an audience and and the inner interaction with the audience i mean comedy's the 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 easiest because you know either they're laughing or they're not you know but uh but uh, i think uh you know they used to have the, the they created the fourth wall they created the uh at the turn of the century and created a whole realistic theater uh as if uh this was um this fourth you could look inside the fourth wall and life was and that's when realistic theater began and uh and um then later uh, brecht and uh it started to become the audience started to become the the more important again and uh, more essentially part of the performance and but it's you know it's fascinating stuff yeah i mean one of the biggest things about theater i think is such a teacher it's uh it, it's such a recreation of life and uh you learn and you grow and you uh make mistakes and you 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 really uh enjoy living and growing and learning and uh uh, uh it, it's really it's really overwhelming in a lot of ways because uh, it's certainly a challenge to take something that's in the imagination of a playwright or a writer and then try to recreate that. And uh, it just, you know, it just there's a process of rehearsal and and um, and it always reflects contemporary life. It, it reflects what's going on, and you have to be in touch with that. And of course, actors and actresses are always quite daring in their approach and um, use all of their faculties and all of their imagination and and uh, and being vulnerable and and susceptible and everything that theater's about. You know, you have to recreate that, and um, it's um, it's an incredible learning experience all along the way. Sure, you have to do things to keep it interesting and continue breathing mm -hmm. life into it, especially throughout the run of a production. Brando's method was to get a little bit drunk before doing the show, and, you know, that'll oh. keep keep it interesting. <laughs> the actors are very superstitious. But but also, I think that's the key. Uh, whatever, you, whatever you are interested in, the audience will be interested in. And so you have to really... Uh, you have to really do things and find things and develop things and discover things that are interesting. And, uh, and uh, your behavior as an actor and you use all of your skills and your, your physical accoutrements, your physical qualities, your, uh, 
and uh, and your your creative creativeness and uh, and but I, I love that concept of, of whatever you're interested in, the audience is going to be interested. So then you have to make choices about things that you're doing and hope that they're in sync with the play, with the plot of the play, you know. Mm. So, um, so it's, it, it's an amazing, it's amazing, um, living process and, um, and it's scary too. It's very scary because you're always growing and you're always, uh, experimenting and uh, plays are always a challenge and finding that essence of the action of the doing of the play and uh, it's um, you're never quite sure how definite the, you know your choices are and of course that's where the director comes in but uh, uh, it's very you know it's very challenging very enjoyable very interesting, very exciting. Excellent. Yeah, I totally agree. Any um any particular stories that stand out working with uh particular actors or directors? Mm, I think every every production there's an interaction between people and um uh, sometimes it's closer than other times, more intimate and um, certainly when I did, uh, Diary of Anne Frank with, uh, with, a kind of international cast. Oh, that was on ABC, right? Yeah, that was on ABC. It's kind of my claim to fame. And I played Peter and, and, um, that was pretty amazing experience. Mm. Now, um, were you the one that had to bail George C. Scott out of uh, jail one night? Uh, that was Uncle Bill, but uh, he he would be he'd have he'd have to get him out of the bars. He'd have to because he was he was older and uh, he had just uh, he had been a Marine and uh, he had actually um, he had actually had walked by. He was in uh, journalism. And he was one credit shy of getting his degree in, in journalism. Oh. And uh, he lived right right across the, the way uh, from my house. And um, George C. Scott did? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So this is before he and, got into acting? Yes, yes. And he went by and they were doing auditions for production over at MU. And uh, uh, Professor Reinsberger was the directing and he stopped and listened for a while and it really caught his attention and um, he um, auditioned and got the part and he was he was an automatic charisma I mean he was just amazing presence and um, but um, he was a wild man he was definitely a wild man and he would go down and and then then uh, the head of the the uh, Stevens College Playhouse Company. This is a this is a professional company that was started at Stevens, and this was the 1949. I think uh, 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 George C. was. Uh, I think he joined the company in 1950, and they uh, the head of the of the Playhouse Company at Stevens saw him on stage and offered him a job at Stevens. I think he taught literature. 
and joined the acting company, and um, the rest is history. Uh, but they they always they were always angry at, at Stevens at the Playhouse Company because they uh, we managed to steal one of the great actors of American theater actually. Hmm. But he he you know he he'd have his nightcap and usually there was a brawl of some kind <laughs> and Uncle Bill had to go down and extract him. I don't think he ever got went to jail or anything like that. Oh, but. I see. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of famous people that uh, people don't realize got their start at Stevens College. Of course, uh, Don Wells and didn't Joan Crawford go there for a little while? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. It's kind of interesting because I've been watching The Feud, and have you seen that? No. It's it's a series on I think it's Sunday nights, and it's about it's called The Feud, and and it's a. Um, about the relationship between Betty Davis and and uh, Joan Crawford, and um, it's it's really it's entertaining. It's very good and, and quite quite authentic too, because uh, they did have quite a bit of a feud. But um, and uh, but she yeah she was a very uh, Lassure was her her last name, and she came to Stevens and. Um, and had a scholarship, and uh, they said the other night that she was from uh, uh, Kansas, and I don't think that's true. I think she was from Arkansas. Mm. I wondered why they changed that, because it would have been better as Arkansas. But anyway, I'm not sure how closely it, it the few, uh, the series stays to the truth. I'm hoping that it's very truthful. But um, anyway, um, she eventually got got uh of course she was you know very emotional very incredible i don't know if you've ever seen her in her early uh movies um she was she was a presence definitely and uh she incredible incredible uh uh ability to attract attention and um she got sick and tired of they she had to um her job was to uh serve the food to the the Stephen Susie's, and she got tired of it. And one day, she just threw the food down on the on the floor and and walked out. <laughs> and uh, Daddy Wood, who was the president at that time, he went down to the railroad station and begged her to stay. Wow! And the 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 uh, uh, kind of the story was that he got on his knees and begged her to stay. And of course, she went to Hollywood, and the rest is history. Huh. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was here, and I, I, I'm so mad at myself because I didn't really get to see her. But when I first came to Stevens, she paid a visit to Stevens College, and at that time, she was uh, the head of Pepsi. Mm. I think her hus husband had died. He was the head of Pepsi, president of Pepsi Cola, and she, uh, Pepsi Cola, was was her thing and and um she was somewhere on campus but i never got to see her mm. but uh, that comes up in in the uh the series quite a lot that she you know used the pepsi cola standard to kind of plug her <laughs> career and make her money and and um remember um one night uh i was in la and we were kind of running around and going to places and things. We ended up at her house 
in Beverly Hills. Oh wow! And and I spent I spent the night in her house, and uh, it was pretty um, pretty spooky. And um, people who were renting it were doing shooting a film, and uh, they knew the some of the people that I was with. So um, so we went inside, and I walked all around. Of course, by that time, the movie had come out about her and her children and how, you know, abusive she was to her children and that kind of thing. And uh, it's amazing watching The Feud because uh, everything is exactly the same as that house. And e even this kind of strange, dark kind of forest green uh, inside and the pool... Uh, and, uh, you know, you can just feel that energy and you just feel that spirit there. And um, it was pretty amazing. Intense. But they recreate, and I, a friend of mine, you know, I said, you know, did they shoot that who has film experience? And he, I said, did, did they shoot that, you know, in the house? Did they do the interior shot? He said, no. He said they probably made it in the studio, recreated it. But I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. Cause huh. It is so exact. It is so exact. Uh, all right. Well, it is 420, so we should place some emphasis on the ganja. So, any crazy ganja stories? Well, um, um, you know, every every ganja story is a, is a story. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that, that uh, I love... Uh, uh, Canada next year is going to be uh, legal um, for recreational use over the whole country. Yeah, that's great news. I saw that. I was actually just up there. I went to Canada for the very first time a month ago. And yeah. I was in British Columbia, and um, there were some places you didn't even need, like, a medical card like you do in California. You just go in and maybe show your ID, and uh, and you can buy weed. Yeah, I think it's pretty loose up there. Isn't that beautiful country, though? Oh yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, but um, I, I don't. I haven't smoked for a long time. Uh, I'm more into the edibles. If I, I don't know, somebody dropped a, a bag of, of brownies uh, in my door in my mailbox the other day. I have no idea who did that. But, uh, <laughs> that was kind of a fun thing. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm a legend in my own mind. You know, they're dropping brown, you know, pot brownies in my in my in my mailbox. You you manifested them. It's like hippie magic. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's. Uh, but uh, so you know, just it's good to hear from you. And uh, for a while, well, thank you so much for coming on. I can't thank you enough for coming in and uh, talking to us. Well, it's great talking to, to you and, and everyone else that's uh, connected with your uh, the populist papers. Oh, that's yeah. An, that's an interesting standard, the populist papers. <laughs> you know, uh, populism is such a strange uh, word, and, and, and it's a strange definition. They, they call the Trumpites populists. And, uh, and if you look at the populists, they were union people. They were farmers. 
who were fighting against the uh, corporations. Right, the agrarian and movement. It was an agrarian movement, yeah. And, and they used that word populists very loosely, as if they don't really understand what it means at all, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, I like populism. I like, I, like, I, 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 I like the movement of populism. Um, uh, the union movement. Um, the Commonwealth. We're, we're ready. Hmm? I think of it as the Commonwealth. That's a good, very good. That's a very good description because um, we have nothing in common and we have no wealth. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 got, I came to the solution. I came to the solution of, of our problem. And uh, first is uh, greed. Yeah. That, that, that starts. That's the beginning of, of the problem love of then money. fear then fear mm-hmm. and then ignorance and the solution to the problem is the golden rule and that is not the right-wing evangelical uh, uh, radical uh, uh, golden rule which says he who has the gold rules <laughs> that would be the people who are in charge right now uh, uh, it's, you know, do unto others as you would want to be done to you. And I don't see that as that hard of a thing. <laughs> you know, it's not that difficult. No, we're but... all in the same boat. Exactly. <laughs> we're all pilgrims. But um, thanks a lot for calling, and it's great talking with you. Yeah, you too, Peter. You're the best. And one last thing. How do you want to be introduced? Peter B., Peter B. <laughs> Peter B. Good. Peter B. Smart. Peter B. Fast. Peter B. On it. <laughs> oh, and do you still have your Peter Beware t-shirts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a got great them, story. Got, got them in my in my my chest of drawers. I'll have to have you on for uh for another episode so that you can tell the story of how you tracked down. Uh, the distributors. Yeah. <laughs> how I found out that uh, how yeah how I tracked tracked down a, a Walmart uh, uh, line of clothing, the Peter Beware clothing, exactly, and and, and found out uh, went all the way out to California was it uh, where they were bringing in uh, and at that time they were making this big deal about uh, American made, you know Walmart, everything's made in America. Uh, similar to Trump, you know, and uh, uh, I, I followed the line all the way out to the the shipping uh, 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 docks and found a lady, got a lady on the line, and she goes, and I explained the story, you know, I found these this wonderful sweatshirts and all kinds of things that <laughs> said Peter Beware on it, and I, since my name is Peter B, uh, uh, and I'm wearing it, <laughs> you know. And she said, no, we don't. Uh, she said, we're not allowed to say this, but uh, we, we make our products in, in East Asia and, you know, uh, Cambodia. And, and they were lying. You know? <laughs> Definite so. Illuminati. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you have a good one, Peter. Take care of yourself, brother. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Later. Mm-hmm.
Now, before I play you the next interview, I'm actually going to play you a voicemail that the guest left me because at first it looked like this segment was just going to be a bunch of voicemails between Patrick Fennell and I. So, here goes. I'm feeling fine. I'm cloud nine. You can be what you want to be. Cloud nine. You ain't got no responsibilities. Cloud nine. Anyway, what's going on? I'm sorry. Of course, now you've got Cable Guy too. So now you're in trouble. Because, you know, I'm in my GTR car. That's the class I like calling. Calling. Cooling. Because you're so cooling. Anyway, here's the deal. Uh, we got to keep talking. I've got some ideas, and you will have ideas, and I want to put you in touch with that guy, which who was, this class was the greatest and the worst class I ever taught. I didn't know I was a participant, the professor, the instructor, or a teacher, but I was one of them. That was that TA5, when that Iranian guy, <laughs> we did the Chenet scene. Oh, my God. You never know how those are going to come out. Now, I think, you know, Colin, here's the play to look for. Look for the acting edition of Rhinoceros by Ionesco. I-O-N-E-S-C-O. Get your friends together. Put together a ragtag production because it's supposed to look ragtag. And I don't know what you'll do about the box set because it does have one of those. Uh, so it's called rhinoceros. It's the absurd notion that everybody turns into Donald's talk face, except in this version, a hundred years ago, because of Nazism, people turned into, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I'm turning into a rhinoceros and they all turn into rhinoceros. And so there's only two people on the face of the earth that are not rhinoceri. You got to read it, and we will talk about it. Uh, oh, and that, this guy—I'm going to call back. This guy is very important. Is uh, was in that class, and he always had a big jar of incredibly, shall we say, uh, Las Umaras, the Indian sacred Indian, where they mix the peyote and with the weed stuff that would just knock you crazy. Of course, I know you acted like you had just had one drink. That's all. Anyway, I can't remember his name, and I will get it from Jake. I also want to know where you got my number. Maybe you had it before. So I want your message because I want to hear it. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, okay, uh, you've got to do my announcer, right? You've got to do dining room, that dining room, that you will love it. You will get three or four of your friends, and all you need is a dining room with a big, long table. You got it, my brother. Then you put fake panel. You go to uh, one of those stores that uh, Home Depot or whatever, and you get that paneling, and you put it up along the walls and create a, a space. And you can also do another one by his going, oh, this one is so easy to do, you don't need any set. All you need is a fourth wall. So you must have a proscenium arch theater, and it's called the fourth wall. And you can do it, I think, with two people. It's awesome. you got to check those out. Those are small ensemble shows that you can really show off your acting talents. Plus, you have to get a competent director for doing all that. I didn't say I was on the list, but I would never refuse royal service. Hello, Mr. Kramer. How are you? 
pretty good. I put a new episode up every uh, the 20th of every month. So if I don't put you up tomorrow, you'll be up on 420. How's that? I prefer 420. Exactly. I was going to call this episode a theater in your mind. Uh, yeah, you're close. Uh, I will come up with a better one for you, but I have to have a deadline for it. Hmm. Theater, you can oh oh I will be speaking on what is called meta one word. It's a great book. You know how like every generation has like a book that you carry around? Sure. Our book was called Meta Theater. Interesting. M-E-T-A, the mind. Meta. Yeah, that's Get very it? six characters. Um Okay, so wait a minute. How do you want to be introduced? Dr. Patrick J. Fennell, uh one time chair of theater, theater doctor, or just paranoid Pat? Paranoid Pat. All right. You mean we're starting? It's it's California law. Well, like I said, yeah. Uh, if I'm going to be interviewed, I don't mind at all, but let's set some parameters. You can't ask me anything about the murder. You can't <laughs> ask me about trying to drug Colin Kramer's mother so I could take her place. You can't ask me this. You can't ask me that. But you can ask me anything else. Like, how was my trip to Hawaii? I wasn't in Hawaii. I never <laughs> said date. What you're talking about? Hawaii. There's so many people of color there, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> it sounds like Richard Nixon. I won't shake hands with anyone from San Francisco. No, no, it was, uh, he learned from Charlie Chaplin, and remember this too. When a Nazi wants to shake your hand by telling you what a great job you're doing, you say, I don't shake hands with Nazis. <laughs> but he said to them, remember what the Nazis like. They want your talent, but they want to not pay you make you pay for doing it, and then beat you up and kill you, and you're gone. That's what the, the mafia does. Mm. They, they take your talent, they suck it up like, they, I'm sorry, they can, they're not doing it like they used to do it at Saddleback, because I won that round. I had to fight them again to get what is legally mine. Anyway, so let's go back to the parameters. You're going to be asking me questions about theater, how it relates today. Or political things, or drug things, well, or sex, or whatever. First, oh, what could go anywhere. I mean, it's kind of like one of your classes. Even though we have a blueprint, we've and this is how I teach too. You know, got notes, yeah. but you can go in any direction. And if there's anything inappropriate, I'll cut it yeah. out. I can edit. That Richard Lewis, who we love because he is so funny. We also love Richard because he's so fucking neurotic. So he has an outline. And people in the audience understand when, do you know who I'm talking about? Richard Lewis, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And he does the neurotic thing of doing what I like to do in the classroom. And I actually got severely criticized because I have to use cards to know where I am. (laughs) They don't care. They don't seem to understand. Well, Sally doesn't use cards. How come you do? Therefore, she must know what she's talking about. I see you have cards. I said, you see this card right here? They go, yeah. This would be like an answer, a question you might ask. You see this card right here? And the person goes, yeah. This card has to do with the Russian national who explained to me the fact that there is no such word as objective in Russian. Mm. So it doesn't exist in Russian acting. The word they use is, is not objective. It is... Uh, problem. Ooh. You have problem. They use that exact word. I said, this is what I'm learning from the students. And I showed because I had heard that that was true. It turned out to be true. 
They don't have objectives. No, it doesn't exist. Get it? Interesting. But it's true. So even today, the San Jose system does not teach objectives. They teach the concept of problems. <laughs> because if something is standing in your way, it makes the logical conclusion that you will engage in not negative, because you can't play a negative. You can only play a positive. Of course, I'm ignored when I say that to the students, too. What do you mean you can't play a negative? <laughs> I'm playing negative right now by telling you to fuck off. <laughs> well, the example uh, would be that, hey, you can't just play cold. You play trying to keep warm. Thank you. Or you're not a black character. I hate that. Uh, are you half Jewish, Colin? Yeah. Uh, that's that's a whole nother story, actually. My final. I know. Well, when I have my now, what is the advantage of before we start? Because I want to, so I won't run out of gas. Are you going to have pop-ups? Are you going to get paid through the commercials and pop-ups? I kind of just want to keep it cool for oh, now and you... just get the message out. You know, hey, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I just want to be able to leave the world with something interesting. You know. Love it. I love it. You're hilarious. I hope you find it, but I have to find a sponsor, don't I? Oh, we'll get there. Speaking of which, who is it? Now, come on, you know the guy because you like pot almost as much as I do. Let me ask you who this guy's name is. He's still in Hollywood, so I'll bet you see him on the lines. Really bright. He was in our TA5, and he was the one on campus that thought he would get away with it, of having the Fuck Jesus shirt, T-shirt. Mm. And they literally illegally unethically and immorally and most importantly constitutionally kicked him off campus wow i have I'm no idea now wait a minute i want to know the guy's name i may have left by that point you what i may not have been at that school anymore by that point i don't know if i took uh, ta5 you were in that TA5 class because I remember your laughter because it was so outrageous, way out of control. <laughs> Don't remember we did Beckett, we did Janae. Oh, we did them all. We... That was a directing class. No. Maybe it was my <laughs> When I had you guys, I assigned you scenes from Janae and Beckett. Hilarious. <laughs> Instead of, you'll do the Neil Simon and you will do, right? Right, right. I don't think so. Anyway, this guy was always had a huge see-through jar of grass on on his bureau in his in his in his backpack bedroom. Oh, and not Dave, the black guy that wants six dollars and thirty cents. <laughs> I was ju you read my mind. Hey man, yeah. need, need any mucks? Mucks? And you'd be yeah. like. Guys, I, I'm in pain. Does anybody have anything? Although I know there is somebody distributing some rather ineffectual mushrooms right now. And he's like, he's not talking about me, is he, man? Email him, or there are emails to get all of some pot for you. Sure. Sure. <laughs> That's what I'll do. In fact, it'd be best if I called the cop. That way you can get the pot much quicker. I said to him, Dave, you've got to be on time. You've got to be on time because there will be something changed about the set, and if you're on time, it will be able to explain to you. Huh. But, oh, no, can you show up on time? Of course not, because these assholes don't even respect call time for equity. If you're not there a half hour before, I will fire your ass. Fuck yeah. Most. It's like the he military. 
because he says, well, listen to me, Doc. I'm only in the second half of the play. I'm not going <laughs> to... I said, is there anything you could be doing? No, I could be playing video games. But I'm video game. Now... I said, could there be anything you could be, like, listening to what they're saying and doing and kind of internalizing that? I'm not in the scenes with them. I'm making a movie here, so I'm moving on. <laughs> I can't think of a more fascinating time and place to grow up than L.A. in the 1960s. What was it like to come of age then? Well, it's interesting uh, because, as I say in the History of Rock show, I say by day uh, it was California Dreaming, where we hung up out at the beach. And then at night, we all headed for Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> so it was like you listened to Beach Boys during the day and the doors at night. And yes, now you're again. <laughs> That's exactly the way it was. Two great L.A. And bands. People forget was, about the diversity. It was Well, it was a different kind of diversity. Hmm. It was kind of when we say diversity today, uh, you know, that time one of my best friends was happened to be black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, diversity, actually, we started with the notion of multiculturalism as opposed to colorblind casting, which is a joke. Right. I mean, like putting, putting uh, Jones in as the big daddy in, uh, you know, a Tennessee Williams play. You don't put a black man in a typical white role. <laughs> it's... Um... Yeah, it draws attention to itself, and it can be really ostentatious. Which is happening again, but for the wrong reasons. The thing I liked about the 60s is the same thing I hated about. You can never predict what would happen next. Mm, chaos. Also, like, yeah, it was chaos, but it was not even ordered chaos. I forgot. I don't even know what kind of chaos it was. But the, it could be all the best... And, it, as the Irish priest would say, it was the worst of times and the worster of times. <laughs> well, you and I are kind of control freaks, so I can relate to um, that unpredictability, uh, not liking it anyway. Yeah, I am a control freak, and it has uh, kind of driven me to be a director, but that doesn't mean anybody has to listen to you when you're the director, does it? <laughs> well, was there any particular production or happening that you experienced that inspired yeah, yeah. you to pursue? We had, uh, as a matter of fact, one of the most popular shows at the time was called the James Joyce Liquid Memorial Theater. What? Yes, it was an actual experiential happening where you had to go through a whole series of sensory experiences to complete the process to see the show. Huh. Oh, yeah. That ran for a long time. And then uh, another real significant show uh, dealt with that damn Scottish play, only it was set to McBird, making, hmm. making uh, LBJ assassinated uh, Kennedy. Get it? Don't say the name of that play either, that damn Scottish play. No, I would never. Now, the first one, though, so, uh, so it was kind of a Joyce adaptation? 
No, no, no. Um, no, I was there. The James Joyce Liquid Memorial Theater was what we called back then, were called happenings. Oh. There were, uh, they come from the bebop people. There were happenings, and there was two other kinds. And in these happenings, they would be set up so that although there were a lot of possibilities, there wasn't any one thing that would definitely happen. Mm. Sometimes one thing would happen. Another time, another thing would happen. The experience would never be the same. That was kind of like, I think, 60s consciousness, too. Uh, right. Well, that, it sounds very meta. Very meta. In fact, uh, I think the most popular book at the time was called Meta Theater, one word. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that book? Uh, yeah, the book is really exciting because at now it would be a very dry book. The book showed how universal um, the modern classics were. And it was pretty interesting. There were other favorites at the time, too. That's right when the first Don Juan came out. Mm. That's right when uh, Baba Ram Dass be here now. Do you remember him? Oh, absolutely. I've got a T-shirt um, with that, that insignia on it, the Be Here Now stuff. And well, because I, the comments I get from people are all over the place. Really? Those of them who recognize him. Yeah, I'm surprised, yeah. Well, anyway, he was an East Coaster, you know, and they 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 kicked him and uh, Timothy Leary, and he got busted. Mm, well, Leary deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were out by the pool with Tom Lear. Remember Tom Lear? No. Well, Tom Lear was a famous... He is a famous scientist, L-E-H-E-R, Lear, and they offered for him to take a trip of acid, but instead of him going along with it or saying he's not interested, he turned them in. Oh, my God. Turned them in and forced them. They got fired from teaching at, of all places, Harvard. Of course. They were teaching at Harvard. I don't know what Timothy Leary was teaching. But well, psychology. And he said that he learned more in his first mushroom trip, that one uh, experience. He learned more in that one day than he did in all of his years teaching and studying psychology. Everybody went up north to New York, upstate New York. And then uh, the cops didn't want him there either. So then they had to disperse, and they did. And that's when Richard Albert, because that was his name, he got a job at Berkeley teaching math. Oh. So wait, was Tom Lear like some undercover agent or was it just kind of leftover Cold War paranoia? That's a good question about Tom Lear. You should listen to some of his songs. He wrote that old dope peddler to Timothy Leary. Huh. Don't yeah, know. Yeah, that. that's written to Timothy Leary. And then he wrote the, he wrote this really funny one called the Vietnam, the, the Vatican rag when you genuflect, genuflect, genuflect. <laughs> Very funny guy, but I don't trust anybody that turns in other people. So anyway, they all eventually ended up out here. Timothy Leary made a beeline to Laguna Beach and used Laguna Beach for his dope smuggling up to 15. 
Interesting. Well, the West Coast is kind of where the the freak bus ends, you know, where the last stop they all end up here eventually. Now, wasn't um I heard PCP was invented in Laguna Beach Canyon. You know if that's true? Uh, I don't think it was, at least I hope it wasn't because <laughs> that would be the kind of thing I would want to see invented in Laguna at all. <laughs> There's a it's, lot of history down there people don't know about. Oh, but that's way too synthetic I think for them. I don't I don't I doubt if it came out of that any lab there. I doubt it. Well, what was my favorite band by far? Still are the Doors. Cool. And I used to see Jim Morrison along pretty regularly. He either be having dinner after a show and with his face literally in the spaghetti. Huh. I saw him at bars where he didn't even bother to get up and pee and would be pee all over the bar stool. <laughs> That's Jim. That's Jim, all right. Learned behavior. <laughs> I remember the day, or I know, remember hearing the story of Jim Morrison meeting with Ray Manzarek, who played keyboards, and they also ended up in the same film class. Right. I was going to ask, didn't you all go to the same school? Yeah. Well, anyway, what happened was that Jim did such a horrible movie that people would just stood up and said, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> this is a piece of crap. And Jim was so offended, he turned around and left, and we never saw him again. Wow, he just walked out. Yeah, that's right. And Ray Manzarek, who was a pretty good filmmaker, Ray was into narrative movies. He was pretty good. Right. Well, didn't he make a film about coming back from Vietnam with a bride? Yeah, that's the one I was just thinking of. That was a pretty good short. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, was, and... um, yeah, I got kicked out of class for making fun of editing. What? Oh, yeah. I got kicked out of my editing class because I was supposed to make it look like James Arness was defending the virtue of a young lady when her husband was abusing her, abusing her. But what I did was I cut around it and changed it that James Arness only came out there because he was lusting after the woman. Mm. And I got back and forth. (laughs) (laughs) Then got myself kicked out, just like Woody Allen. Well, back then, school was affordable enough. It wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, when I made the transfer in 68, it was only $80 a quarter. Wow. Way inexperienced. And uh, Santa Monica College might have been free. I'm not sure. Anyway, talk about the proliferation of bands. Maybe not as many bands as there were during uh, the 80s in Seattle, but pretty many bands. Oh, well, and the Doors. A lot of bands. They were kind of the first gothic rock band. Not really. I don't agree with that, but I'll tell you who introduced the Doors was Love, the band Love. Ah, I remember Love. Yeah, check them out sometime. So who who do you think started gothic rock? More Velvet Underground or... Uh, well, yeah, there's a little, that's a good question. I don't really know. I never really thought about that part of it. Because also, gothic means different things to different people. For some people, gothic means like medieval, right? Yeah. Um, I, there's and just for so other much. people, uh, gothic might mean like more of a heavy metal sound, right? Exactly, yeah. It's kind of in between punk and metal and uh, maybe a little bit of techno, like the industrial, obviously. Now, it's interesting because punk gets so much attention, but 
um, yeah, the goth scene. I mean, it's kind of like the way different artistic movements make comebacks through music and countercultures. Like like surrealism came back as 60s rock and industrial was kind of like Dada or absurdism. Yeah, yeah. Be careful of throwing all those around, though, because it's kind of indiscriminate. You know, it's uh, somewhat like fashion, but it's also like what happens in history in general. And uh, so I liked a lot of the bands, and I oh, we used to love to. uh, They had PSA flights where we could even go in the back of the jet and smoke a joint. Wow. And and uh, the flights were $10. Oh, my God. Yeah, for students, yeah, from, right? Yeah, we sat in the back late at night and took flights up to San Francisco for free concerts all the time. That is so cool. I knew it, you well, could that smoke was cool. in movie theaters. I didn't realize you could smoke herb on planes. We got away with it. Ah, it was the 60s. Well, um, speaking of uh, the 60s and punk, um, it's really interesting. I at first had the notion from movies like Sid and Nancy that the punks were like rebelling against the hippies. Like they thought, oh, all that uh, peace and love stuff is just hypocritical and it didn't get anything done. But when you look at Cheech and Chong, you see, especially out here in L.A., there was much more of an overlap between the two, you know? It was just kind of that yeah. weird, drugged-out, chaotic Chief world. Chong, I, I noticed our touring again. Right. Oh, I think they have already. You know, the funny thing about them, I watched their movies before I even started smoking pot, and that was part of what made me want to get stoned for the first time was so that I'd finally get their films. That's funny. <laughs> so what do you think about the overlap between um, hippie and punk well, you know what that becomes? I was just thinking what that becomes. Steampunk. Ah. I think hippie and punk is steampunk. Now we're talking. Oh, you like that style? Well, it definitely, but um, I think also the theme of chaos that you brought up. That so, it was just anything goes. Saddleback did a nice production of Town using the steampunk, and it worked. Oh, no way. Hey. That was one of the last good productions they ever did. Interesting. Yeah, um, love it. Love that show. So, speaking of Town, that is pretty political. What do you think, um, I mean, theater's played a very political role. It's kind of a place to confront the truth, right, throughout the ages. In fact, I think there was some rule in ancient Greece that to be a sitting senator, you had to spend time in the theater first. So what can you say about sort of the political role of theater? Well, there's no doubt in my mind that theater serves a universal with a capital U role in addressing spiritual wants, needs, and desires of people. Hmm. And that's, Kind of like, to me, the theater is, I hate to use the word religion, but it could be, it could be your spiritual, spirituality. It's a source of spiritual need. Uh, Anybody can entertain by putting your pants down. (laughs) Well, religion, the word itself means union. 
So you might be onto something. The theater is kind of this place of uniting, I don't know, with God or with the truth. Right. On, the other hand, on the other hand, I was realizing the other day, I think it was uh, 914 AD the, in the Eastern Roman Empire, you would be uh, thrown out of the church if you were caught going to the theater instead of mass on Sunday. Wow. Yeah, you would be excommunicated. Well, um, yeah, and that's kind of uh, my next question is if you could talk about... See, I know you and I share a mutual fascination for not only investigating the truth, but for the mystery schools, as they call them, and sort of these ancient pagan origins of theater. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize, even doing a show these days, you're engaging in this cathartic pagan experience. So can you talk oh, yeah. a little bit about the pagan origins and the pagan nature of theater? The irony, the up to right around 900 to between 900 and 1100 AD, basically, the Roman Catholic Church had to bring in the pagans to teach, to literally teach the clerics how to sing and use, you know, Latin. You know, like the term Dominus Fulpeo, Ecum Spiritu Tuo. Right. So it's the bending the notes as part of pagan ritual. So all of Christianity started with pagan ritual because the pagans came in and taught them the songs. Get it? Ah. That's how it came about. And then when things got too comedic, that's when we got kicked out. Hmm. See, we were too brutal, we were too revolutionary, we got kicked out. Then we started performing on the platea, the platform in front of the church with the three sets of Roman doors. Get it? Uh, well, three sets because of the Trinity? I uh, know the Greeks used them ah. for entrances and exits. Then the Romans adapted them. And when, so when you look at a Roman Catholic church, they have the double doors in, for, in the center and the two side doors. Oh. That's been a, forever. Gotcha. Well, my understanding is that, um, you know, going at least back to ancient Egypt, there were these sort of esoteric rituals that people would do in these esoteric orders. And gradually they started doing them for the public and with the public. And that was kind of the, the origin of theater as we know it. So um, definitely a union going on uh, and a catharsis. But um, do you know anything about it going that far back? Uh, no, I don't. There's not a lot of extant evidence you can, uh, can, the only thing you got there is conjecture, but it makes sense. For instance, if you go back to ancient Egypt, they were, they were into processional right. theater. Anyway, um, we can do this two more times if you want, but I'd better go now. Okay. Well, cool. Thank you for your time. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch then. But we can keep talking until you do. All right. Or, uh, well, you got to go right now?
Yeah, pretty much. Okay, because I was going to make one more point about just uh, the Chinese theater, how um, when it was when martial arts were illegal to be taught out there, they disguised it in the theater because that was sort of a safe place to you know keep. Good point. Very good point. Just like they weren't allowed to perform theater after uh, between 1642 and 1660. So what did they do? They brought in little boys to sing like cherubs. <laughs> they didn't sing any lines. They just sang. Mm, interesting. Okay. Well, I'll let you go. Hey, thanks again, Patrick.